2: Welcome to the Uncommon Drive Podcast with Jeff Cross and Chad Ozy. Join us as we look at life, leadership, and legacy through the lens of sports officiating. Good day, everyone. Uh, this is uh, Jeff Cross and Chad Ozey. Chad Ozy here with the Uncommon Drive Podcast. We are so glad you're joining us today. Um, before we get started with today's podcast, we just want to make a couple announcements. If you could um, sp- spend just a few seconds in giving us a five star rating or some sort of uh, review, that helps the algorithm uh, send our podcast more uh, out to other officials and other people that might be interested in it. Um, Chad, how you doing, buddy? I'm
3: doing great, Jeff. Do great, yeah. loving uh, loving Christmas time. I am currently in Mobile, Alabama. Mm. Uh, it's funny. Normally, Jeff and I get together and record uh, in the same studio together. Uh, occasionally, if we're doing an interview, we'll we'll split to different rooms at the same spot, just so we don't get echo and that kind of thing. Um, and today, we have a special guest with us, and all three of us are in different states. Um, I love technology when it works, and it's awesome to be able to use that, still be able to connect. And our special guest today is somebody that I am... I am super thrilled to have on the podcast with us. We've been fortunate. Everybody that we've had on has 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 been great, but I have I have personal connection to the person that we're gonna be talking with today. Uh, He is the NCAA D2 National Coordinator of Umpires, which is the big fancy way of saying he's the guy that selects who goes to the World Series. Um, He, uh, as an umpire, worked two D2 National Championships. He worked in the Big Ten, the Missouri Valley, the MAC. Uh, He came up, went to pro school and worked minor league baseball. Uh, And then he was a coordinator as well. So really all these different aspects that we talk about on the podcast he's done, he was the the former coordinator officials for uh, the Great Lakes Valley Conference, uh, also assigned umpires for the Prospect League. Uh, And on top of it, he's just a pretty generally good guy. And we're thrilled to have Scott Taylor with us today. How are you, Scott? All of that stuff just means I'm old.
0: <laughs> I love it.
2: Thanks see, for well, having
3: me, Jeff and
2: uh, Chad. Um, I've been looking forward to this. See, we're uh, a podcast of truth, man. <laughs>
4: uh, and so what I'm I am. Just had my
3: 62nd birthday last week.
4: Awesome. Congratulations. Wow, Absolutely.
3: And, uh, and Scott is in sunny Florida right now. Uh,
4: not so, so not so sunny Florida. all oh, right there now. you
3: go. We, we like to, when, when we're up north, we like to pretend that it's sunny just so that we think somebody is mm-hmm. getting sun, uh, right. Scott I and I are actually 20 degree weather. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, Scott and I are actually closer right now than Jeff and I are, which is kind of funny in this whole deal. Yeah, um, funny. so, uh, Scott, one thing that we ask everybody that comes on the podcast, uh, to kind of just get us started off is, you know, how did you get started in officiating. And I've heard a little bit of that story, but if you'd share with our listeners, how did you get started in umpiring? So I only did two sports ever. I did, I did basketball
4: for a hot minute, uh, which helped pay some bills through college. Mm -hmm. And, uh, then I did Baseball and baseball. I was a I was a specialist. I was not the well rounded athlete. I <laughs> I just did one sport because I did it fairly well, and it started at a really early age. I started. Uh, I played uh, up until uh, little league, and then I play continue to play, but. At age 13, uh, my father, you know, you know how you, you go around the country and you go to these small towns and every, everybody's got the towny umpire, right? Mm-hmm. My father, Adrian, was the towny umpire of Blackwell, Oklahoma. And uh, he worked everything. He, he'd work an 8U game one night. The next night he'd be out working an American Legion game. He did whatever. If there was a game going on, he was somewhere at a baseball field working it. And when I turned 13... He decided that, you know, hey, you really want to do this, then I'll work with you. And so I went at age 13 to literally, and this was actual Little League baseball. So it was Little League branded baseball. Stayed on the base until the pitch was thrown and all Mm -hmm. that good stuff. Uh, And I worked 10, so it was 10-year-olds that played by themselves, and then the 11- and 12-year-olds played in a different league at that Mm -hmm. time. So I went and worked 10 year, 10 year old baseball. That was my, that was my beginning. Uh, and I never, (laughs) I tell this, I don't know if my father knew what was going on when he did it. Uh, I, I never worked a base job. In fact, I didn't work a base job in a baseball game until I was 18 years old. Oh my goodness. I strapped on Every single night, and I don't even remember what I made. I think it was like I think you made seven fifty for working the plate and five dollars for working the bases. And I'm pretty sure that my dad took the seven fifty <laughs> <laughs> and made me work the plate. And I did it with such like I was. Uh, uh, I'd wear shorts. I didn't wear the uniform. I wore shorts and a t-shirt and had the chest protector under the t-shirt and the shorts. Mm. I had the uh, exposed shin guards and never, never wore a pair of plate shoes. Mm-hmm. The into- I mean, this was raw, young umpiring and uh, fell in love with it. Yeah, I just, I just did. I was hooked game one and and that's what I did. And I credit to this day, my dad for getting me started and and having the foresight, I think in his own mind that he was going to make me work the plate. I think, I think that's, that's where guys get a little sideways today. They'd like to work the bases. I was, I was, never, a, I was never a very good base umpire, even through all my years of – if I was going to miss something, I was going to miss it on the bases. I didn't miss stuff behind the plate. I, I, I was most comfortable. I wanted to control the game. That was my ego talking, but that was what it was. I think anybody who's worth their weight as an official has some sort of an ego. Involved, you have to, or you wouldn't do the job. Uh, and I like to be in control, and so I worked the plate all those games. Um, worked my first uh, Division One college baseball game at eighteen. <laughs> A student at the university, I worked the game.
2: That, wow. That's stuff
4: that you'll you'll never see anymore sure. ever. It just it just won't happen. Uh, And then went off to umpire school at at age 21 and got a job and went and did the gig for five years and came off the road and then started real life. So Mm -hmm. I miss it. If I told you I didn't miss working baseball still, it'd be a lie. Mm -hmm. Uh, But when I took this job and I took the Great Lakes Valley job when I was 54, eight years ago, uh, it was one of those situations where I thought my longevity in the game could stick around a little bit longer. I could, I could cast a bigger shadow and, and help others and do the things that I wanted to do to, to build the brand and help umpiring as a whole. And it was a decision that I made at that time. And of course, right after I made that decision, that's when the Big Ten went to twenty four hundred a weekend, and <laughs> <laughs> all those things. That the, the the pay got really, really good, and the SEC and the ACC is making three grand a weekend now. And uh, I missed out on a lot of that money, but I, 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 I miss being on the field. I miss being with the guys. I don't know mm-hmm. that I miss the games. I miss the guys more than I do anything. So I got a dog down here at my feet whining at me a little bit here, so I'm trying to
3: uh, keep <laughs> that totally to a all right. Him. Well, you know, he Scott, wants, you wants to be in the he wants to be in the shot for a second. So. <laughs> you know, you mentioned the fact that you wanted to cast a bigger shadow. That's one of the very first things that I noticed. I met Scott multiple years ago, um, not long after he got in the Great Lakes Valley job uh, at a at a two man umpire camp. Now he's at that time assigning for a, a Division two conference where. Um, you know, he's more concerned about three-man umpires and and things like that, even though at that time they were doing some, some two-man for non-conference games. And here he was showing up at, at really an introductory camp. Now, it's one of the – what I think is one of the best two-man camps anywhere in the country, uh, the Mid-America Umpire Camp uh, down in Springfield, Missouri. Jason Blackburn down there does a phenomenal job of training people and doing great things. Um, and I went down there to that camp, and I saw Scott as a, as a D2 guy – so enthusiastic, so pouring into people. Um, and there were NAI people there and JUCO people there that, that fit a lot of us that were at that camp more than what that Scott did. But Scott very much was was interested in that. And then I've seen through the years, everything from Division One camps all the way down to, to guys that are just working travel ball. Uh, and, and Scott will show up at the park and and begin to pour into people. Why is that so important to you, Scott? Why is it so important to be pouring into not just what we often think of as young officials, but new officials? Because some of those officials may be 55 years old and newly retired from their their day job and, and just beginning to figure out how to how to umpire or, or work another sport. Why is that important to you? I think there's a lot of things that, that weigh into that, Chad.
4: Um, I think first and foremost for me is that I think that, state of umpiring has gotten to a point with the way we're treated on especially youth baseball fields and things like that that we've lost a lot of good umpires uh they just have thrown their hands in there and said this isn't worth it anymore mm-hmm. uh so have camp will travel for is my is my motto and i and i've and i've slowed down on that over the last couple three years but but really for me i'd rather go to a camp for instance, Bruce Stone's camp in Michigan, where he has 50, 60 young people, guys who are doing nothing but work in summer ball and trying to unearth the next umpire. I think that's so important because I, I don't think that we're, I don't think we're looking hard enough. Mm. And I think that, that, that we need to unearth some diamonds in the rough, as it were. Uh, and so that's why I go to those type of camps, period. Mm-hmm. Um, I I want to find somebody who's got some talent and be able to nurture that talent and to be able to put my arm around this kid and say, you know what? You continue to do this three or four years from now, you're going to be working high school baseball. You're going to be working 18U baseball. You you got a chance to go into the college ranks. and And that is so important because I think we as umpires, especially those summer guys, get beat up so bad. Somebody's got to love on. Somebody's mm-hmm. got to love them and say, hey, look, you got some talent here. We'll teach you how to tone out all the, the noise, all the crap that goes on. But you got some talent. You need to, you could be really good. I don't think umpires hear that phrase enough. And... For my money, I'd rather go to a rookie bunch of, bunch of kids who don't know anything about baseball. I'd rather go teach at that camp than I would go teach at a camp of prospective Division 1 umpires, in my mind. It's, 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 those guys have made it. Those guys are, are where they are, and they're going to gradually go up the ladder if their talent continues. We're not doing enough to find the next group. You know, the average age of a college baseball umpire right now is 51 years old. Wow, we're going to lose umpires over the next 10 years. Where where are we going to get them from? Mm-hmm. I, it, nobody knows, and I think it's important. And I and I've always been the guy that's wanted to go. Um, my role, but like I said, my role with that has changed a little bit. It Used to be when I when you and I very first met. I was in the GLVC. I had, a. I was looking for umpires Mm -hmm. uh, and I could control that process from that camp. I saw you work. I hire you in the GLVC now with the national role. That's a little bit different. Sure. You know, I take all the recommendations from my coordinators of all these division two conferences. I go try to get eyes on guys, but I really don't get involved in the in the minutiae of the who, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean. The who the who is going to come from the top-level guys in each of those conferences. I'm now diving down a little deeper into that and trying to find the guys who are leaders. And and you and I've talked about that on several occasions. Just because you're a great umpire doesn't make you a carry North Carolina Division II national championships umpire, uh,
3: the leadership factor for me really starts to weigh in of how far you go in the playoffs. Yeah. And, and I want to come right back to that. But there's something you said a minute ago. Um, you, you said when you started out, you had the shorts and the t-shirt on with the exposed shin guards and the chest protector and all that. Um, I was really? at a, a camp where Jeff was teaching this summer, where he uh, was a young guy that was there at his first college basketball camp didn't have the right pants had like on, you know, black, like sweatpants, you know, and the wrong shoes. And I think maybe even the wrong shirt with everything. And and what I found interesting was that everybody that quote knew what they were supposed to be doing was looking at that person, you know, like, Oh my gosh, don't they realize how much they're screwing up? Whereas people like you and like Jeff and others are like, man there's something that could could happen here you know they it's not just that they don't know they don't know because they've never been taught it's not like they were flaunting coming in doing the wrong thing they they just said no this is just what they've been brought up with and now here we get the opportunity to impact them and so many officials are the first ones to to trump down other officials I mean, don't even give the fans or the coaches or the players the chance to do it. But we as officials are the first ones to bash them sometimes. And I wish that we just had a little bit more patience with that within the world of officiating. Uh, It happened to me about
4: three years ago. A guy showed up and didn't have proper uniform on. Mm -hmm. And you could tell that he did not. I saw what he drove. I saw you could tell he did not come from money. Sure. Actually bought the guy a uniform. Mm-hmm. That's, but that's, that's me. That's, I mean, no, a lot. You're right. The sharpies come out and the lines get drawn really quickly these days. And you, for me, you get way more trouble. You're, you're getting a sharpie line from me for stuff that you do off the field or the kind of person you are or your inability to lead a crew way before your ability to what you can do on a baseball field. It just I, I'm a big believer to give people chances to to prove themselves. And sometimes you need multiple chances and sometimes you just need to teach the person you know, I'm sure that in Jeff's situation, you know, he didn't have the proper uniform on, and a bunch of people laughed, and his peers laughed who were in the camp. And so this guy's never going to make it. And I'm, and I know Jeff well enough to know that Jeff went up to him and said, Okay, here are your next steps. Here's what you have to do because you've got some talent. I can, I can see that you've got something here that you can work with. So here's, here's what you need to do. And here's what you need to do to make yourself stand out at the next camp you come to. Because funny enough, the guy who doesn't have the right uniform and everybody laughs at now you go put the right uniform on that guy. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden about half of those guys that laughed are going to get passed Mm -hmm. and they don't realize that they don't know that when they're throwing those daggers, but it's the truth. The ones who laugh and keep everybody put their thumb on their head and keep them down. Those are the ones who are the first guys get passed when somebody is educated properly.
2: You know, and, and Scott, you know, Just in reference to this gentleman, what I noticed in this gentleman was the fact that I think he even knew he had the wrong uniform. Obviously, if you're around 75 other officials, you know that you're not in the proper uniform. But this dude still got courage to go out there and referee, even though he knows he's in the wrong uniform. To me, that's something that we need across all officiating, whether it's basketball, football, baseball, whatever that is. We got to have some courage To say, okay, I'm going to go out there and potentially make some mistakes. And then, you know, so now I'm having, I have this courage to go out there in the wrong uniform. If I have enough, if if that person has enough courage to do that, then I can address those situations. So I know they've already got the courage built into them. When a coach tells them you just missed a play or whatever that might be, or or an evaluator uh, uh, scolds them for, for missing a play. I know they're going to have the courage to continue on.
4: Mark Ditsworth, who's the regional evaluator for Division I baseball, the guy, he's got one of the biggest voices of being able to send a guy to Illinois, has a saying, and I believe in it wholeheartedly. It, you, it takes two things to be a great umpire, conviction and courage. If you have those two things, you can overcome anything else, any other obstacle in your way if you have conviction and courage conviction in what you're doing that you're doing the right thing and the courage to make the right call at the right time and be the guy who puts himself out there. That for me, that those two words, conviction and courage speak volumes about all officiating
3: today to me. I, I love that Scott.
2: Conviction and courage and write it down.
3: I-, I know Scott that you and I came across something in talking last week that I was not aware of. Now, I knew you were a basketball fan. It's impossible to be somebody who lives in the state of Indiana and not be a basketball fan it, at some point. Um, my uh, All my in-laws are from Indiana, and they're uh, Hoosier fans who live in, in West Lafayette, Indiana, where Purdue's at. So uh, all sorts of fun stuff going on right now in college basketball world. But um, I, I know that you and your wife have have watched a ton of basketball, have, have been around. Um, one thing I, I did not realize was that, at least for a while, um, you actually went and evaluated – basketball officials, not from necessarily an X's and O's standpoint. Not evaluate, observe. Okay. Observe. I like that word better. Okay. That's, that's good. So you went to observe and give feedback to, uh, to somebody that was, was assigning officials and things. And I I think it's really interesting in what I want to ask you next, because you brought up this idea of your job now is to help people elevate beyond just the X's and O's. Beyond just they can work a game, they can call balls and strikes. In, in the basketball world, they know fouls and violations and all that kind of stuff. But now, what are the things that begin to elevate somebody, let's say, from, from Pool A to Pool A+. Plus? You know, you, you got this whole group of, of officials out there, whether it's basketball, baseball, softball, football, whatever the sport is. But there are a few commonalities that I think begin to elevate people out of just being a very good official, to really being a great official. And when you begin to look at that from those names that get sent to you, or when you were looking at it on a basketball court, whatever, what are those things that begin to show you, wow, this is somebody that knows how to take it to the next level. I think it's why JD actually asked me to
4: observe basketball games. Okay. I was, I, if, if, if you asked me where a position of a three-man crew and basketball is supposed to be, I have no idea, mm-hmm. but JD looks for a lot of the same things, and I took this from JD actually when I took the national job for baseball. I th- I think the the important thing is how you how do you handle people. You're, you're able to sit there and observe of how you're you know you got a coach just wearing you out on a bat and basketball especially baseball it happens too from on balls and strikes from the dugout. You got you got a coach just wearing you out. How do you handle that as an official? You know I know how I used to handle it. And I would have never worked anything big because I would <laughs> yell back. <laughs> this is the way I was, it was the way I was built. And and, and and it was also part of the era, part of the time that I was coming through officiating, you could do a lot more things that were not necessarily looked at as bad by then. And mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of those things that we could bring back and it would, it would help the official coach relationship because We just send up, we end up having to just take it a lot and letting coaches wear us out. And I hate that. I think Mm -hmm. at some point in time you ought to be able to be able to stand up for yourself and say, hey, knock that off. (laughs) You know. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and and I think the biggest thing for me when I'm looking at an official, they need to understand in basketball, it's when you walk, walk, take your first step on the court. When it's baseball, it's when you take your first steps out of the dugout, out of the tunnel, or you open the gate and you take a step on the baseball field. The demeanor has to change right there. You know, it's, it's all happy and fun and jovial and you're having a good time, but bang, now we're serious. You know, you, now the professionalism has to kick in a lot of things that you have to do now. Um, a lot of pregame type things that you have to handle, that you have to know what you're doing you know have to know how to handle certain certain questions certain situations certain rules questions is this guy legal with this things like that 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 you have to know you can't just get by anymore on ball strike safe out and it's what i look for first but it's not what 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 i look for last okay that's that's important to know um Let's let's take the instance of me selecting an umpire for Kerry. All
3: mm-hmm. right, and, and let's be honest. This is this is what everybody wants to know. I don't care if you're basketball, baseball, whatever your sport is. We all want to know what gets us to the conference tournament, what gets us to the championship, what gets us to the World Series, whatever those things are. And that's really what you're talking about here. So, there's a lot of things that
4: happen in the course of the journey through regionals and super regionals to be considered for caring. There's a lot of guys that have sat in regionals for a number of years because they have not been willing to do the things that I have asked them to do to be able to, where I become, I I call you a leader. Mm -hmm. You get to a super regional, there's four guys. So you should know at that point in time, that there's something on your back that says, okay, I got a shot now. Regional does not get you a turn. Mm -hmm. Super regional gets you closer to that turn. When you're crew chief in a super regional, your turn's coming. It's just a matter of when. Unless you do something just completely egregious to screw it up. If you've made it to the super regional and you're a crew chief, or even if you make it to a regional and you're a crew chief, Now you should know the targets on your back, the spotlight and the magnifying glass are bigger. Mm -hmm. And so now is when you do everything right. You can get away with a few things. You know, I, I have an umpire that got overturned on three calls on the bases in a regional last year. Okay. I have a crew that got overturned on a total of five calls in a regional last year. Well, obviously for me, there's more work to be done sure, in that situation. And you, that doesn't mean you can't fix the problem because we have replay. Mm-hmm. So I, I tell everybody, the first thing I tell guys in, in carry, you know, we can fix safes and outs. We can go to the replay. We can fix safes and outs. The most important ball game you're going to work is when you're putting the gear on.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: Because you can't fix that. That's you exposed as an umpire everything rises and falls and hinges on your decisions on every single pitch that i can't fix with replay Mm -hmm. um that's the most important thing for me perfect example of it was a guy from new york city named warren nicholson really good umpire on the east coast um warren in a first base job um Got two out of three calls kicked in a two-inning span, in a, in a one-inning span over two different at-bats. Had two, over, two calls overturned out of three. Went to replay three times. Two of them overturned. You went in the locker room after the game, and you could just see it in his eyes. He'd screwed the pooch. He was he was worried. He's upset. He's And I literally went around the room to the other three guys to evaluate them first, and I let him stew in his own meat for a minute.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: To let him, to let him, okay. and I and I looked at him and I says, "Look, what happened happened. Yeah, you got two calls overturned, but we have replay. We can overturn those. What's the most important thing for you right now? Get better. No, not get better. Focus on tomorrow night because you're at first base. Where's your rotation going the next night? You got the pot. You're working mm-hmm. a play. You better be great tomorrow night." So you need to go home, go have dinner with the guys, go have a couple of cocktails, forget what just happened. Because the more you stew on it, the more it's going to affect you for tomorrow night. He came out the next night in a plate job. Now, this is where the rubber meets the road, guys. How you react to adversity is how you define yourself as an official. He could have tanked. He could have kept last night in his head and could have tanked and been terrible and it could have hurt his career. Instead, he came out, forgot about it and had what I would consider one of the top two plate jobs of the entire eight days. He bounced back. He came back, he came back from that adversity and killed the plate job. Just killed it. And I was and I was never so proud of an umpire because coming back from what he where he was 24 hours earlier in the dumps in the locker room with his head in his hands to come back and have a great big, huge smile on his face. Cause he knew, he knew. In fact, he looked up at me and he, he kind of gave me a nod about the fourth inning. He knew then <laughs> what was going on mm-hmm. and he felt it. It's, that's a special thing. That's, that's what I talk about making the profession better. That's mm-hmm. what I feel we did with that guy will make him a better umpire at an exponential rate moving forward because he had to experience what he had to experience in that, in a big, in a big light.
3: Sure. You know, I think a lot of us would not think of a, of a national coordinator taking that tactic, Scott, because I think a lot of us in some ways kind of see the national coordinator as the person with the big checklist and the red pen you know, oh my gosh, how many, how many red marks do I get against my name? And if I get so many red marks, well, now I don't get the opportunity. And instead what you said was, <laughs> okay, yeah, there, there were a couple red marks, but still the point of this is to make us better. The point of this is for us to, you know, to do. And, and I think maybe some of that comes from the pro world, where I think so many have come out of the pro world feeling like they're always looking for the opportunity to move somebody out. So somebody else can move in. But I really do think in the NCAA world, both basketball and baseball, it's just a little different than that.
4: Chad life is a series of red checks. If you don't believe that, let me bring my wife in from the other room and she could tell you all the red checks that I've gotten just in the time we've been in Florida. <laughs> life is a series of red check marks.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: What you do with those red check marks Defines you. Baseball, things are going to happen. Mistakes are going to happen. It's not the mistake. It's do you learn from the mistake? I don't worry about red checks with guys as they climb the ladder unless the red checks are the same mistakes. Mm. There are many different mistakes you can make across your career. I've made my share, and yet here I am, national coordinator. I'm just a guy. I was a I was an average umpire, wasn't a great umpire. I was an average umpire. I was an average player. Wasn't, nothing great, but I worked hard. I don't think anybody out would outwork me. I don't think anybody had a better personality to be able to deal with conflict than me. I know that. If you look at the arbiter, and I've had people tell me this, you know, we use the term umpire's umpire a little loosely from time to time.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: But I've had many guys and guys that have worked Omaha that are much, much better umpires than me tell me when they saw my name on their crew on the arbiter list, they knew everything was going to be okay that weekend. That's what was important to me. I, I wasn't going to leave you by hanging. I was going to. I was going to make sure that I took care of the business that I had to take care of when it came up. Um, it just mistakes are made in life. Baseball is a part of life. Basketball is a part of life. Football is a part of life. Mistakes are going to be made. That you have to go into it understanding that in the first place. This is the only job in the world that you're expected to be perfect on day one and get better as you go. That's not realistic. Sure. It's just not realistic. I'm human. We're gonna we're gonna screw things up. How you bounce back from that screw up defines you not only as the official, but as the person as well. You know, you make you kick a call, admit it can't admit it very many times or you're not a very good official if you have to do it a whole bunch of times in your career but sometimes a coach will come out and I disarm him by saying hey I I messed that up what's he going to say now Mm -hmm. people people will go to the end and fight sometimes for something that's not worth fighting for Mm -hmm. if you know it in your mind and everybody in the stands and everybody in the ballpark knows it and you deny that you know it, you've hurt yourself integrity-wise. You need That's those are things that you need to understand. You can't just go down with the ship sometimes. You know, nowadays, with the advent of replay, it's really easy to look at a coach and just say, hey, something's funky here. I'm gonna get together with the crew. Mm-hmm. Tom Hyler did this in a in a meeting about four years ago, and people still don't understand it. People, people hold on to the fact that if you've got a call and you've made it, but you technically are not supposed to go get help for it, it's a, a play at first base. Are you supposed to go get help from your crewmates on a play at first base? Nope. No, you're not. But you know, you can appease a situation and you can fix a situation really quickly by, you know what? I don't know if I got the best look at that. I'm going to get my crew together. We're going to, and, we're, and I'll come back to you. You already disarmed that head coach. It's over. No mm-hmm. matter what happens, you're going to come back with a decision. And whatever that decision is now, because he's come out, here's the tool. Here's the tool belt that you need to remember the thing in the tool belt. Once that coach comes out, you send him back to the dugout. By rule, he can't come back to argue that play anymore.
1: Mm-hmm. So
4: you could sit here and have a two-minute conversation with a guy that's going to be irrational. Or you can just say, you know what, Coach? I'm going to go get some help on that. You need to go back to the dugout. Whatever we come back with is final. You can't come back. It's over. Yep. If you get overturned, if, the, if somebody, if, if the other three guys are all adamant, then fix it. We can fix things now. I think the biggest thing is we get a rap because most people, and I'm even talking, I I watch 18-year-old kids who will sit in a dugout. I'll stand over by a dugout and and they'll see a guy acting cocky, an umpire acting cocky on the field. And the 18-year-old goes, oh, it's all about him. And they're right. Mm
0: -hmm.
4: They're absolutely right. Right. Uh, the quicker we make it not about us and put the focus on who they came to see that kid, not the coach, not us, the kid, the quicker we put that focus back in there and we show our humanity, the better off we all are.
3: Mm
0: -hmm. I,
4: I, I truly believe that. And I just think we, we stick to our guns in situations we don't need to stick to our guns to. We have tools that we can use to make a, Two-minute stupid conversation with a head coach, a fifteen to twenty-second. Okay, you got it right. Let's go. Mm-hmm. End of discussion. We and we don't use those tools enough. And I, I think if 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 we as umpires showed a little bit more humility on a baseball field, it would go a long way towards fixing the bigger problem of. Mamas and daddies and grandmas and grandpas and coaches coming out and running ramshot all over us. We have a part in this too. Mm -hmm. I I won't say we have the biggest piece of that. I don't think that's true. I think the problem is systemic with society and how kids are being brought up. And all of a sudden that 13 year old kid that thinks he's going to get a division one college scholarship that weekend, his dad thinks that. That's a lot of the problem. But we could do, we could come part way to the middle too. That I don't think we see a lot of those things.
2: I want to go backwards a little bit, Scott. You know, you said that, you know, two things that get somebody ready for Omaha or the World Series, and that's conviction and courage. And I believe, and I want to know your feelings on this the courage is the big thing that can give you humility. You know, when you, if you say we need umpire to be more, you know, be, have more humility say say, Hey, the call. you know, I can, I could admit that, um, we got to have really strong courage. I believe anyway, in order to be, to have humility and to say, you know what, it's going to take great courage for me to go, Hey, Skipper, I missed it. I missed it. And I'm, I'm hoping I don't miss another one, but that's all I can really do right now. Um, what, it takes what courage to use
4: that? those words. It takes courage to use those words, Jeff. Yeah, it does. Mm -hmm. I think I think I think the guys that hide behind the power of officiating are are cowardly. Mm -hmm. I I, I think I think that's a big thing. Uh, And I hate I hate being that neck. I get accused a lot of times of being a little over the top of being a little negative on the attitude of the brotherhood. Mm -hmm. First of all, I think brotherhood has gone out the window. I think that everybody knew their. I'm sixty two. I came out of pro ball at 25, and I had to learn right away that the guys who had worked the college game when I came back and started umpiring college baseball were the ones – they were the ones. I had to defer. I think the great thing about some of the pro umpires today – you know who the great pro umpire is who comes back and works college baseball today? Because he'll never spout a resume. You will never know. He won't say a word about it. You'll hear it from somebody else.
0: You
4: know, first time I worked with David Ewell, mm-hmm. perfect example. Living in, I think he's living in Nashville now. He wasn't in the Chicago area, but I think he's moved to Nashville. David Ewell, my favorite David Ewell story David Ewell decided they took, they, he had a number for a while. He didn't have his number for a while. They were sending him before he went back down to AAA to Minnesota to work a big league, the last big league quote, spring training exhibition game in the new target field. He went, he worked the game, he dropped the mask and his wife, Kristen, came picked him up and went home to Chicago and he was done.
0: Mm.
4: He was done. That took a lot of conviction and courage, trust me. And And then David wasn't going to work that college season. All of a sudden, Rich Fetcher put him in a couple of games and I was fortunate enough to work with him At Illinois, Chicago. Hmm. And David walked out on the field, and I'm literally sitting there going, I don't know what they're looking for. If they're if they're looking for a big league umpire and that's not it, I don't I don't know what it is. But you would never know that he was a professional umpire, just three months earlier Mm -hmm. because he came out and he was one of the guys immediately. He didn't say a word about anything professional. It was all about the college game, and he's put himself on the doorstep in a very short period of time now that he'll he'll be going to Omaha sometime soon, I believe. He's been two or three Super Regionals now. But those are the guys. You know, a guy that – but you got a lot of guys. <laughs> I'm going to say this. It's going to take a lot of people off. Uh, I don't believe you've worked professional baseball until you got to double A. Okay. I just don't. Now, I, I, I've, I've amended that for one reason and one reason only. That's where I got. I <laughs> a, a double a. <laughs> I really don't think you've worked professional baseball until you've been in AAA, honestly. But there's a lot of guys who are guys that went into the game and filled some spots and were rookie and A-ball umpires that, you know what? They were never going to go to double A. They were never, so that, were you really a professional umpire if you didn't really get to make the whole journey? I think you were a spot filler and there's a lot of guys and, and, and those guys stand out because they're the first one in the locker room. said, well, I worked in a ball and I did this and I did that shut up and work. Mm-hmm. Show me how you can show me how you work. Show me what you've done. Show me what you're going to do.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: So the, the pro guys need to understand that. And I've said that I've said this before. It's not like I haven't said it before. I've said it in clinics, you know, Hey, professional guy you need to understand you're coming back to college baseball. You're not in pro ball anymore. So humble up and know where you are. But at the same time, I'll tell the college guys, because there's a lot of college guys out there that are whining and crying because the pro guys are taking their jobs. They've been trained to take your job. Mm -hmm. They work more games in one season than you worked in 10. Mm -hmm. So if you've got three years of pro ball and you, I guarantee you you've worked more games for the most part than most amateur umpires who are working that level. And they've, they, and they've certainly seen more pitches than you have.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: They're, they're, the training they went and got and were smart enough to go get set them up for that opportunity. So if you want to continue to work in college baseball and keep the pro guys from taking your job, get better. Period. Get better. Get in the cage before the season starts and go see pitches. You'd be surprised how many guys don't go do that. The first pitch they see of the season is when they're out on a field when it matters.
3: Mm -hmm.
4: I've never believed in that philosophy ever. You got to go, you got to go see, you got to work at your craft before it means something. And I don't think we do that enough either.
2: I, I would also say you know, because you're talking about these, these pro guys that walk onto a college field and say, you know, you know, excuse me, coming through, I'm a pro umpire. I would even say that that even trickles down when we have college referees that go work a high school game. You know, they walk on a lot, locker room, excuse me, college referee coming through, coming through. And to take it even one more further, uh, excuse me, varsity official coming through to work this freshman game. You know, it happens all the time. And uh, I'm gonna go back to a phrase that you said. um, You said you believe the brotherhood is no more. Is that is that what is that? It's broken. Broken. I think it's broken. Meaning, meaning, we're all in the same brotherhood. We should be anyway. And if I'm whatever Jeff Cross works, you know, couple Division One conferences and goes to work a high school game in a Christmas holiday tournament. We should still be in that same brotherhood. When I walk in there, we all should be in that same brotherhood. And I would agree with you 100% that I believe that brotherhood is broken.
4: I can't tell you the number of times when I was active and working where somebody I have never met has walked up to me as we're walking off the field saying, hey, I'm a high school umpire. You mind if I talk to you? I can't tell you the number of times I took them out to dinner.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: come to the locker room, meet the guys. Hey, we're going to go grab a bite to eat and a couple, a couple of beers. You want to come with us? Expose them to that. Give back. You were, you were that guy. Once mm-hmm. I was that guy. Once. I, I I've always wanted to give back to them. It, it, I used to do it all the time in, in professional ball. When I would go back to cities and I would meet high school umpires in those areas I'd actually go out in the middle of the afternoon and go watch them work just because what else did Mm -hmm. I have to do? I was going to do sit by the pool. Mm -hmm. (laughs) No, I, I, I've always gone to games. I've always gone to watch. I've always tried to give constructive criticism and give back to the, to to the guys who want to be where you are.
2: Right. So I really would like your input here. (laughs) If the brotherhood is broken and Chad, maybe you can weigh in on this a little bit too because I believe you believe the same scenario. If it's broken, you know, I'm the kind of guy that it's okay. If it's broken, how, what can we do to fix it? I can't just accept the fact that it's broken. There's gotta be some, some small steps that we can take early on to keep it from continuing to break, you know, whether that be a band aid until we find another process to get that bond stronger and better. So do, do you have any ideas there?
4: Oh yeah. I And, I, and I'll use it. Uh, I'll use my pro, my pro experience to, to get you to understand this. There's a hierarchy when it comes to professional baseball. And you're in spring training and the AAA guys and the AA guys and the A-ball guys and the rookies are all sitting there swapping stories. Or maybe there's a major league guy in the place too. The rookie and the A-ball guy have one job when the big leaguer or the triple A guy throws a $50 bill down and says, go get beers, you go get beers, (laughs) Uh,
0: (laughs) you go get beers
4: and then you bring them back and you give them to everybody and you sit there and you learn. Mm. Now, some of the stories are crazy and you're, and you're going to learn hopefully not to tell those stories later, (laughs) but you're, Everything is a maturation process. Two ears, one mouth. You're going to learn more with these than you will by spot. I, I, I see it in way too many situations where in that situation, a AAA guy is telling a story and the A-ball guy says, well, in my game in Prince William Sound, this is what happened. And the AAA guys are looking at him like, Really?
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Really? <laughs> and,
4: and so, and this comes down to college baseball too, but it's a societal thing too. I think the young people of today think they've got it all figured out already. And most guys would like to teach the young guys and mentor the young guys. I really believe that would, they would like for that to happen, but the young guys don't listen. It's, it's, it's what we call. Yeah, but society. Sure. You know, I did this. You did this, and this, and this. Yeah, but you did this. I mm-hmm. did it for. Yeah, but I did it because of this reason. Instead of just taking it and learning from the situation, I, we we all have to we all have to spout our opinions, and ours has to be the right one. And mm-hmm. I think the younger in the brotherhood you go, the more that's become prevalent. Everybody, everybody who's young thinks they get the They, they get, They're good enough. Mommy and daddy have told them that they're great for so long. My dad used to tell me I was crap. (laughs) Today, that would probably get him put, get sent to human, human and social services.
2: Yeah, that's right.
4: But I was, I was crap as an umpire. You did this wrong. You did this wrong. You did this wrong. Everybody's got to have, it's the, everybody's got to have the metal syndrome.
2: Yeah,
4: Not everybody gets the metal. Not, not everybody gets to go to the big game and know your role. John, John Brower says this really well. Guy that has got the MiwA and the GLVCs as a conference coordinator of those two conferences. The most important game you're going to work is the one you're on that field right now with those kids. I don't care what it is. Is it JUCO? Is it NAI? Is it Division One? And you made the comment about a, a college official coming down to high school. Oh, it happens in Division One versus Division Two. Division one guy will come out of the baseball field and, and strut around like his shit don't stink mm-hmm. and in a D2 game and it puts off coaches. Well, yeah. you're working this game today. You're good yeah. enough to work this game today. So work this game. Mm-hmm. Don't You're not in Bloomington working IU. You're working. You're in Indianapolis working the University of Indianapolis Work mm-hmm. working. Yep. Uh, and not everybody, but there are a few. And, and, and the few make it bad for the whole. So it's not, it's not a big fix to fix the brotherhood. I really don't believe it's a big fix, but I think there are certain people that need to be taught that this is the way things are. Yeah. And because everything comes full circle. Sooner or later, that young buck becomes the old stud. Mm-hmm. And the old stud has to do what he has to do to teach the young buck. And, and, and everybody's going to have their turn, but it, it, there's a cycle to everything.
2: And I'm going to go back again. Conviction and courage, right? What what's happening, I believe, is this this younger generation, newer officials, whatever that is, they're using conviction conviction and courage in the wrong context. They're using it in the wrong spots. They're trying to use this, oh, I got courage to speak up at a table full of triple A umpires when really, you know, they should just be sitting there and chasing beers and listening, but they're trying to use your conviction and courage in the wrong spot. And that, you know, that's probably a lesson. If, if anyone listening out to right now, if you're a young person, you know, we all want you to have conviction and courage, but we just need to understand there's a right time to use that, and there's a wrong time to use that.
4: Well, I, it, it's the Tommy Toppers. Everybody wants to do a Tommy Topper story. You know, I've, I've sit here and quoted four guys that I've learned something from. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've quote, I've, I've given them credit because those are things that I have learned that I now have in my tool belt. I wouldn't have those things in my tool belt if I was trying to be the show, if I was trying to be the one that was the most important person at the table. I do a lot of listening at tables. You know, everybody, Jimmy Jackson, another regional evaluator. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm as good at umpire as Jimmy Jackson is. Jimmy Jackson will tell you I was as good an umpire as Jimmy Jackson was, but I wasn't. Because I don't have a ring that says I went to Omaha. Mm -hmm. Defer when you're supposed to defer. That's right. Defer to greatness. Mm -hmm. And that's um, so Jimmy Jackson, in my mind, will always be a better umpire than I ever was because he went places I didn't get to go. Those are the things guys need to, to stop and think about as you're
3: climbing the ladder. I like it. You know, Scott, you've had success not just on the field, um, but you have a very much an entrepreneurial spirit. Um, you you know what it means to to start things and see them carried through and all. And one of the things that both Jeff and I have said is that we believe that being a sports official makes you a better person. We believe being a sports official makes you a better spouse. We believe being a sports official makes you a better parent, a better employee, and better employer if you allow those aspects of that job to filter into who you do and to, to who you are. So what is it that you believe about being a baseball umpire made you a better person off the field? Um. I'll be specific.
4: This, this job that I have now. Okay. I've been my own boss for a number of years. Yeah. If I, if I wasn't a guy that had been my own boss, I could have never done this job. Okay. I believe that because most people who are employees follow direction. In this job, I have to set direction. Mm-hmm. And that's important to, to get your message across to what you want your guys to do, what you want them to stand for. I, if, if I wasn't the person I am off the field, I could have never done the stuff that I've done with baseball in the NCAA. Now, that sometimes gets me into trouble because I sometimes will say things that I might have toned down. A little bit (laughs) not for
2: umpires.
4: I think all umpires want to be told the truth. Mm. There's a certain amount of certain amount of finesse that you have to use because I don't always agree with some of the things that go on in the program Mm
0: -hmm.
4: from the NCAA. But I have to do them because it's part of the program. Sure. So So how do you get a modified version of what they want? How I pick my umpires in division two is nothing like they pick them in division one. Nothing like that. You know, there's a watch list of 300 guys that are all trying to get and 200, 200 a season gets seen. So when you're talking about getting 108 umpires selected for postseason, there's 200 guys that got seen for that opportunity. Out of nearly 3,000 NCAA umpires. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of things that have to happen. That you have to be able to break down that you have to be a free thinker to be able to do that. Um, my list isn't nearly as large. My list is more like 120, 130 that I'm selecting 80 six guys from so my job's a little easier my job's also not nearly as political as the division 1 job you know george drusius has a whole lot of people he has to make happy
3: mm-hmm.
4: and egos get involved i don't i don't have that problem in division 2 i think that uh, power creates problem in some cases. And I think that too many people who would like to have the power, but, and aren't willing to s- seed off some of that power, it, it hurts. It, it makes the process very difficult. It shouldn't, it should not be as difficult as it is at the division one level in my mind. Um, I don't think it's very difficult at my level mm-hmm. at all. I trust my guys. I trust the guys who are seeing them every day. Uh, I don't have regional evaluators that there's conflict created because of the program. It's true. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think that there are certain steps that you have to have in that division one, because we, for a very, very, very long time, and we've just gotten rid of it. I believe over the last five or six years, the good old boy selection. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm it's your it's your turn to go to Omaha. There are no turns to go to Omaha. There are no turns to go to Kerry There are no turns to go to Cedar Rapids. You earn the right to go to those three locations to get the ring and and I think there's a lot of guys who have gotten to go in the past that couldn't even get into a regional today. So I think the process has really honed that down and has helped it but I think it's also created a lot of controversy that it's hard to come back from.
3: Yeah, And for those of you that are listening, that come through the ba- the basketball side, you know, when he talks about a, a George Drushis, that would be comparable to a Penny Davis on our side. Um, you know, these are people who are, are making these decisions, not just, uh, not just with the official lens, but they're looking at it through the NCAA lens. They're looking at it through television lenses. They're looking at it through coach input and all these different things that happen. Um, we, we had a, a, an episode several weeks ago uh, where Jeff and I were talking about how uh, there are a lot of people out there that don't want to hear the truth. A lot of people say, well, I, I like it because Scott Taylor will shoot straight with me. I like it because Jeff Cross will shoot straight with me. I like it because a Jim Jackson or a Mark Ditsworth or whoever you're talking about. And what we typically mean when we say that is not really that they shot straight with us. It's that we heard what we wanted to hear. You know, there, there's a difference between between those two things. And, and the reason I'm going to bring this up, and I'd, I'd like to kind of set this up as we begin to wrap up this conversation, Scott, is because I know that you're a person who will shoot straight, whether it's something somebody wants to hear or not. And, and here's how I'll, I'll lay that out. Um, I went to a, a camp that Scott was a part of after the first camp that I went to. Uh, so I'd gone to the first camp in October, November, whenever that was. I then went to a camp with Scott the very next June. And Scott made a statement to me uh, at the wrap up of that. In fact, I've talked about it on this podcast where Scott kind of said, you know, I really didn't expect a whole lot out of you. I saw your name on the list. I didn't expect a whole lot out because when he'd seen me back in Missouri, I had been one size and I had been, um, I'd had one ability level and experience level. And I'd I'd done a lot of work in that seven, eight months, whatever it was in between. But what I appreciated about Scott was that Scott just said, hey, just so you know, I wasn't expecting much when I saw your (laughs) name on the list. Um, and, and, what's interesting, I think there are a lot of people that would have taken offense to that. To me, I, I actually took it the other way. I said, well, if he wasn't expecting a whole lot and yet he's still willing to sit down and have a conversation with me at the end of it, then it means apparently I did something that he wasn't expecting. I knew other people at that exact same camp who, when they got to the end, Scott did something very unusual, at least for the, us in the college baseball world. Scott sat down across from every single person that came to that camp and had a very direct one-on-one conversation saying, hey, this is where I think you should be. This is where I think you could get. And this is what I think it would take to get you there. And I knew people that absolutely hated those conversations. And the reason they hated those conversations is because they didn't hear what they wanted to hear. I think you're right. I think people do want to hear the truth as long as it is a truth that fits their narrative. Mm You know, so Scott, you know, what are the things that we need to be doing as officials, let's say that as, as a D2 coordinator, you look at me as a D2 umpire and say, Chad, you know what, Um, I I think you can work games, I think you do whatever, but you're, you're never going to make it to carry. That's, that's just, that is not part of your, of your ceiling right? Or, you know, a Mary Toberman on the basketball side saying, you know, man, I, I think you're, you're a great official and, and you're going to do a lot of good things, but, but reaching that pinnacle, is it, is it where you're going to get? Um, and, and, and sometimes there's lots of different reasons for that. There's, there's age, there's ability, there's all these different kinds of things, but Scott, what is it that we as officials need to do when we're hearing from people that are in those positions? And, and as we look to get better, what, what are the steps that we can begin to take once we've heard those things that maybe we do or don't like to put us where we need to be?
0: Wow.
4: Um, okay. First of all, I want you to notice, though, that the thing about me, I will tell the truth. Yep. But you have to have buy-in from the official. Mm, I like that. I, al- I always ask for permission. Okay. to give them that feedback because if they don't want to hear it a why waste my breath because they're not going to take it
0: mm-hmm.
4: so i think the first thing that needs to happen in the process when an official gets that type in evaluation is you need to take two or three days and process what was said If if you if you just immediately react, he thinks I'm crap. Then that's how you're going to. That's that's your takeaway from the conversation. Mm -hmm. You don't. You're not listening to the specific things that I'm telling you on what you need to do. See, there's. I never ever give an evaluation to an umpire where I don't end with something good. I want the last thing that they hear me to say to be a positive about their game. I think I think that's important because that's what the last takeaway is what they're going to walk away from. That's when they walk away and it's kind of like Jim Carrey. Oh, so you're saying there's a
0: chance. <laughs> that's right. That's
4: right. <laughs> I believe, you know, I, I would never tell somebody, I don't think, that I've, I've, never, I've never done it before, that carry is not something you can achieve to, Because mm-hmm. I, believe, I believe in goals. Sure. I'm a goal-oriented person. And I think that everyone should have those goals. And if, if you don't think I think you're ready for carry, then I want you to should prove to me why you are. I want you to work a little bit harder Make it to where I cannot write down a list of eight guys in carry North Carolina, without your name on it. Mm-hmm. Now, all the things you have to do to get to there are going to be some things that uh, I've had guys that were off my list. I've gone to evaluate umpires that were on my list and watched a guy that happened to be on his crew that might have done three things that you would see less than 10% of umpires do in a game. And I'm, and I'm literally walked away from the game going, yeah, he was okay, but Holy crap. Why is this guy not making it on my list? What what's going on? And, and I, and that's the part of the give and take with my coordinators. I might see somebody and and I've never seen his name on my list ever. I said, why don't you like him? Mm -hmm. What's wrong? Now there could be the reason of he's a little young yet and I'm not ready. I don't, I don't like that reason because if a guy handles himself correctly and he's young, my job is to get him through my system as fast as I can. So he can be a division one umpire. So if you're, if you're 28 versus 48 and you have the same abilities the old guard would take the 48 year old because he's worked 25 years to get there. Mm -hmm. The new guard is taking the 28 year old because the 48 year old still got time. He's not, he's probably not going to the next level, but the 28 year old, you want to get him through your system as much and quickly as possible so that you can advance him to a JD Collins or a George Drusius or somebody can use him at the next level. Mm-hmm. That they need to know about that guy. I, I'm. I took a guy to my World Series one year, who was 26 years old, and had never worked a Division One game in his life, and had never been to a postseason. But I took him to. But I took him to carry the first year, because I'd seen them all,
0: mm-hmm.
4: everybody from that region, and he was clearly the best umpire in that region bar none even though there were guys with multiple regionals and multiple super regionals under their belts this guy was better i'd like to think that my judge of baseball talent shows Mm -hmm. he worked one world series and guess what he had the next week next year 15 division one weekends Mm -hmm. so obviously somebody up there agreed that he needed to come. That's what I'm looking for. That's I'm looking for the guy who's the... I'm looking for the best umpire. But I'm also looking for a lot of intangibles that... There's there's a list. Mm -hmm. I don't don't tell the list, but there's a list. (laughs) (laughs) There's a list of what I'm looking for. But I don't want... But see, here's the problem. If, If I give you my list, Chad, then somebody who saw me come to work that game who sees this podcast might be somebody on a baseball field that he's not normally. Mm-hmm. I want to see them in their raw state. I want to see them as the, as what they are normally, because that tells me the baseline of talent that they have. We can fix the rest later. I want to know the, but if he comes out and does everything that I want him to do, that's a false narrative. For me, that's mm-hmm. that's the guy who's the third baseman who there's a foul ball into the stands, 15 rows, and he runs all the way up and tries to get right up on the railing to show false hustle that he can go catch that ball when quite literally off the bat. You knew it was 15, 20 rows deep and there was no way he was ever going to catch that. But he busted his ass to show false hustle to get there. I don't want somebody to show me false hustle. I want somebody to have the tool belt. So I don't I I. I I know you want me to give you some kind of a great big here's what I'm looking for but that would be that would be unfair to the
3: guys that are already doing it well and here's the thing I I think that our people or our listeners need to hear this in that it's it's not just about a list yes you've got a list but the the list so many times is about just the little fine tuning intangibles you know, rarely is the list ball strikes, because if you're on somebody's big list, you can already call balls and strikes. Ball strike safe stats are second nature. That's, That's right. absolutely true. Absolutely you know, true. on the on the basketball side, you know, you, you know where to go stand, you, you know, you know when to get deep, you know when to pinch, you know when to do all those kinds of things. But it's those it's the way that you communicate. It's the way you handle your off field stuff. I, I can say as a coordinator, I've had far more people lose jobs. No, that that's that's not fair. I have only had people lose jobs for off field stuff. I have yet. No, I've not been doing it as long as other people, as a coordinator. <laughs> but I'm telling you, I have never fired somebody for making a wrong call on a field. But I have fired people for not handling their business off field. I have fired people for the way they communicate to other people and things that they do. and And that kind of stuff is that That's real. That's what we we deal with. And so, you know, I, I think it's really good for our people to hear that. Scott, i'll I'll say one thing here as we begin to wrap up, and then, Jeff, I'll give you a chance to close this and Scott, if you've got a final thought that you want to share, I'll do that. Uh, I'll be more than happy to give you that time. One of the things that i that I appreciate appreciate about Scott, and one of the reasons I was so excited about having him on the podcast is that I think there are, there, there are people who see what we do as a business, and it is okay, especially when it comes to the NCAA. Uh, we can even take it under the NAIA. You know, those they are a business, and if if they don't generate income, if they don't generate revenue, none of us have jobs at any paycheck. That's that's just how it works. It is a business, but for Scott. It's more than just a business. There is a passion to what he does. There is an enthusiasm. There is an energy. And if you're ever around Scott, even just listening to this podcast, I'm sure you've already heard that in the way that he's communicated. And I think we still have to be able to bring that to what we do. There are days when it's more work than others. Jeff and I just had this conversation the other day. There are days on a baseball field where it's more work. When you've got the number four starter, on a Sunday afternoon because number three went down and he's having a really hard time hitting his spots and you've got the plate that day, you're going to have to work a whole lot harder maybe than the guy who had the Friday night and everybody was hitting their spots and people were swinging the bats and people were making plays. Anybody can work a Friday night game. That's right. <laughs> you know? And so so when when you can still bring that energy and that enthusiasm to what you do, even though it's work. Um, I think that's part of what it takes to help to help mend the, the, the brotherhood aspect of what we're talking about there. When we understand that it is still about the joy of going out and doing what we do and making that impact on the people that are around us, players, fans, coaches, the other officials, I think it makes us better at what we do. Jeff, you have any thoughts before we uh, we give Scott the opportunity to share with us?
2: I have. So I, you know, I make notes typically on every podcast, especially when we have guests – like yourself. So um, I have two questions that I don't know that got answered and hopefully you can answer them. Um, One was when you did say that you went to umpire school. Um, I think I know I want to know, and I think a lot of people would want to know which umpire school did you go to?
4: One that's not in existence anymore. I'm old. (laughs) Joe Joe Brinkman. Uh, Well, Brinkman was buying it from Bill Kinnaman the year I went. 1982.
2: Okay, so I went to I went to San Bernardino, California. Yeah, San San
4: Bernardino, California.
2: Nice. And um, when you went to that school in 1982, can you put in perspective what kind of class you were dealing with? You were a class of 100. Was it 300? Was it 50? Do you do you remember that?
1: Fifty.
4: Yeah. Fifty-five, actually, I think. It, it was a so traditionally more people went to Florida than they went to California to those two schools. So just to put that um, into
2: perspective, you were you were one of fifty-five in one class for and then and then so people could understand if it still worked out that then back in eighty two, they would pick two or three to move on into uh development five. league. They pick five, right? Five.
4: to go to the advanced schools.
0: Sure. Was
4: and I was, and I was number five and our number one that year was a uh, guy that spent about uh, 25 or 30 years in the big leagues, uh,
2: Mike Winters. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, the next question I have is uh, so we, we talked a lot about newer officials and younger officials as an evaluator, as someone who uh, observes officials, uh, whether it be umpire, or basketball, baseball, or umpiring, um, what is just something like for you that you really would love to see in younger, newer officials? That you could tell they're new, you could tell they're young, but what's something like okay that you're attracted to that?
4: Have fun. Mm. I think too many guys go out there with this. Stoic look on their face and their every moment is a grind. We're involved in a game. Have fun. Act like you're having fun. It's not wrong to smile on a baseball field. I'm getting paid to do something that everybody else in the stands thinks they can do better than me. It's okay to smile. It's okay to have fun. Good stuff. I I, I'm a I'm a I'm big believer in have a little bit of fun. Uh, The message that I would give out to the up and coming umpire: understand that I recognize, and I and anybody who's worth their weight in evaluating umpires recognizes it is much harder to work a 12 U baseball game than it is to work a division one baseball game. It's much harder. Pitchers aren't on the plate all the time. Plays don't always get made. The difference between the, the youth umpire and the division one umpires jobs is that everything in the division one game is magnified. Everything in pro ball is magnified. You're not magnified as much on a youth baseball field, but trust me, I know and anybody who's worth their weight in evaluating umpires knows if I go out and watch a guy work a 12U game, it's almost impossible to really give them a true evaluation because the level of baseball is not going to be conducive to giving them a good evaluation. I think guys right. too many but I think there's too many camps that have mistakes of booking the wrong games for their camps mm-hmm. because you really truly can't get a feel for what a guy is unless he's working where you're trying to get into. Mm-hmm. That's why the in-season evaluations for me are so important because you're out there seeing guys in the element you want to see them in. Mm-hmm. That's 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 gotten so much more important now. There's 3,000 people sitting in Duty Noble Stadium in Mississippi State just screaming at a guy, how does he react to that? Versus the one mommy or daddy over on the side in the 12U game. And so everything is magnified just a little bit differently. Uh, But without the 12U umpire, the rest of us don't exist. And I think that's what we've forgotten as we've climbed the ladder, mm-hmm. I, I I think we need to go back to our roots sometimes and and give back to those guys and help develop those guys to make them better and re- start, I'm, I've always been a big believer, leave, leave it better than you found it. Mm-hmm. There's no way that we do that unless we go out and start searching for the young guy now and bring them into the fold and teach them the proper way to do it so that we can leave it better than we had it when, we, when we were there. That's my that's my takeaway for, for every conversation I ever have about umpiring.
2: I love that. I love it. Um, so because I know we're getting ready to wrap up, Chad, but this is what I want people to, if they haven't taken notes, these are just a few notes that I've taken. Uh conviction and courage are two things, right? That are needed to do, you know, that's those are two things we gotta have. I'll tell Bidsworth um, what, that you like that. <laughs> I do like it a lot. Life is a series of red check marks. I love that. I love uh, the, the statement that you said, power creates problems. So I think that's totally amazing. Um, and I, the, the, well, I just wrote your very last one down, but the one before that was take a couple days to react to your evaluation. I think that is so important because we do pass um, an instant judgment in, in the heat of the moment, of our evaluation and we're not really taking it for what it's worth. And the one that, of course you just said, you know, and I, I I, I paraphrase a little bit without the younger umpires slash referees, we don't exist. And I think that is so, so true. Probably the, out of all of them, that's the strongest one that you've said. So I appreciate it, buddy.
3: You know, we started this, we, we started this podcast because we know that as, as people are driving to their game, um, you know, you got so much windshield time and you could have the music on, you could have a, whatever going on. we said, so many of us, we, we love to have interaction with other officials. We know there are officials out there right now that they don't have somebody to connect with. They don't have that person. They can call on the way to or from a game. So we said, well, let's just make this drive, this drive a little uncommon. Let's, let's provide people with, with voices that they can hear on their way to or from a game. We know there are people are going to be listening to this podcast this next week, that uh, they're going through the holiday season, and things are a little up in the air. You know, COVID's out there. We got basketball games that are being canceled. We, we don't know exactly what a baseball season is or isn't going to look like this year. We're hoping it's going to be normal, but, you know, everybody's fingers are crossed and all that kind of stuff. Um, but we also believe that it takes an uncommon drive to find success in the world of sports officiating. We think it takes an uncommon drive to find success in our relationships and at work and in all of those aspects of life. And and Scott, I believe you are someone who has an uncommon drive. Uh, I have, uh, I had the good fortune to be around you and other people like you when I was just starting out in collegiate sports or even before i got gotten into collegiate sports um, and uh, now have the incredible good fortune to be able to call you friend on top of that. And I appreciate the time that you were willing to give us. I know that your time is very valuable. And so thank you for that. Um, If there was uh, somebody that wanted to reach out to you, after hearing this, if, if they had questions or if maybe they wanted to follow some of what you do on social media, is there a good way uh, for them to do that?
4: Um, yeah, they could you can email me anytime. Uh, awesome. Uh, D2Umpires at gmail.com I, I get questions a lot there and I'm a little slow sometimes to respond to them, but I do, I do respond to all of them. Uh, and I, I think it's important. I think people need to understand that okay, I have a title, but I'm just a guy. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just a guy that's going to, you know, you're asking me for help. I'm going to give you help. I, I'm not doing anything that anybody else wouldn't do for you too. but, I, but you touched on the role of mentoring. And I, and I think that that's a message that I would like to get out, not to the young umpire, but to the veteran umpire. Yeah. Everyone, everyone, everyone take one. Mm-hmm. I, think if, I think if we do that, I think we, we make umpiring better as a whole, but everyone, everyone take one. It, 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 there's a certain time in your career that it's your turn. And if you're a veteran umpire and you've been doing it for 10 or 15 years, it's your turn. Take one, yep. find yep. one, find somebody to mentor. Yeah, Don't, don't make them
3: come to you. Go, you go find them. And, you know, for those of you that have been listening to our podcast, that so fits in with the philosophy that we talked about a few weeks ago. You know, we we should have relationships with people that are where we want to go. You know, if you're that D2 umpire that's working for uh, for John Brower and the MIAA and you want to go work a, a D2 World Series for for Scott Taylor, but you also want to be you know, work in D1 someday, then you need to have relationships with D1 umpires that know what that means. You need to have relationships with people where you're at, those other people that are working that same conference and know those same coaches. And and you can share those war stories with and, and how you get out of them and get to the next one. But then you also need to be having a relationship with somebody that wants to be where you're at. I think sometimes we so get caught up in wanting to get to the next place that we forget there are people that would kill to be where we're at. And I don't care if you're a high school varsity official, if you're a JUCO official, if you're a D3, D2, D1, or pro, there is somebody that would love to be where you're at. And if you can be identifying those people and helping pour into them, it will make what you do richer and more sweet. Imagine yourself as
4: an umpire who's been around for a while. And imagine the person that would like for you to mentor them as being a guy who's got one hand on the edge of the cliff and the other one reached up and it's your job to either he falls or he stays. Yeah. Are you the guy that will reach and grab the guy's hand and let him go and let him fall? Or are you the guy that will reach out, grab his hand and pull him up and make him better? Mm-hmm.
3: It's, an, it's, it's in our hands to do that. That's great stuff. And that, that will make us uncommon. Uh, that's, that's not the normal thing in our culture today. The normal thing in our culture today is look out for me and me alone. Uh, but for us to be uncommon in our drive towards success means we pull other people to where we're at, even if that means that they climb ahead of us. Uh, and, uh, and I think we need, we need to be doing that. Scott, thanks so much for your time. Uh, Jeff, it is always a blast getting to hang out with you, whether it's by zoom or in person. Uh, if you have questions, if you've got thoughts, send them to us at uncommon drive podcast at gmail.com. Everybody have a phenomenal holiday season. And, uh, we look forward to sharing with you again next week. See y'all later.
2: Merry Christmas, everybody.
3: Thanks for listening to the Uncommon Drive Podcast. Be sure to check us out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And be sure to leave us a five-star rating.
0: Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you.